Hi, and welcome to The Mean. I'm Ryan Huber, and with me, as always, is Nicholas Seagraves. Hey, Nick. Hey, Ryan. How is lovely Chicago today? So incredible, crazy hot. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. is is Chicago, like, the hottest and coldest place you've ever lived? Um, it doesn't feel as cold as Indiana. Okay. And probably not as hot as South Florida. And it's not as, like, just overwhelming. It still gets, like, a little bit cold at night here, where in Florida it's just, like, 89 during the day and 87 when the sun goes down. You gotta love that moisture lock that happens in Florida. Mm, mm. Well, today, Nick, we're gonna talk about uh, awareness. Episode 36 of The Mean is about awareness, and we're gonna talk about the popular culture, standards of awareness, why people try to raise awareness, uh, what awareness does for us vis-a-vis social media and global news and some of the sort of reactions to things we've seen recently in the news. And mm-hmm. then um, I wanted us to kind of do a little bit of a, a deep dive into what awareness actually is, how it connects to conscience, ignorance, obligation, guilt, and uh, maybe try to figure out why it is that we're kind of obsessed with it as a culture. But um what is something in your life that you associate with the phrase awareness or raising awareness? Like when I say that, what is, what is your first reaction? I think the first time I heard that phrase, personally, I'm sure it's not the first time it's ever been used. It was during the initial Invisible Children campaign, if you remember that. Yeah, explain to our audience in case they don't know what Invisible children is yeah so it was about um the use of like child soldiers in uganda and it was this grassroots kind of young person campaign where they made these um like zero budget documentary films yep and you'd buy the dvd and you have like a viewing party in order to raise awareness because the the whole thought was, you know, if most people in America knew that children were being forced to rape and murder, sometimes even their own families, people would be outraged and they would pressure the government, I guess, or send private funds. What I don't know what the end goal was, but the ground level goal was to like show your friends the movie and get them Mm -hmm. to know what's going on. Yeah, and I think two things are going on there. One, the name of the organization was Invisible Children. Mm-hmm. That shows you right now, right there, that they're trying to make these children visible. So that the very heart of the organization is to raise awareness. And secondly, I think you just laid up, laid out the map of what a lot of people hope happens when you raise awareness. Mm-hmm. Step one: let more people know about something, usually something really bad. Step two. They they become outraged. Step three, they do something about it. And to be honest, step four, usually nobody really knows what the end goal is or they don't have the power to actually manifest or instantiate that end goal or accomplish that end goal um, most of the time, especially if it's a huge problem, which things that outrage us tend to be huge problems. Yeah, well, because there's normally not a solution to mm-hmm. the big problem. To quote President Barack Obama, once something gets to my desk, there's usually not an easy solution. So most high-level problems that become sort of societal-level issues, there is not an easy solution to to those issues because if there had been, someone would have already done it, right? So it's most, most things, bringing awareness to most things, um, may not be the road to an easy solution that some of us sometimes think, especially, I mean, I was, I was caught up in the invisible children thing. I thought it was a great cause and I, you know, participated in some of those events and I just thought that, that, you know, this is something people should know about. Mm-hmm. What do you think? I mean, I was too, I was too, because it was, it was interesting to have, a campaign that was just almost purely awareness. Yeah. Because I remember seeing those like humane society commercials are like the food shortage commercials mm-hmm. or the tsunami relief commercials. And it was always like, here's a phone number to give money. 
are like sign up for a membership to do this. But no, 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 no. It was yeah. here's a Sarah McLaughlin song, mm-hmm. and then here's a phone number, and that's what well, you're... yeah. The no, the Humane Society was make you feel like human trash <laughs> for even being alive. Like just a slow zoom in shot of like the snottiest beagle. <laughs> In a I cage. will remember yeah. you with like scars around its neck from like a chain. I don't know, whatever. I mean, it <clears> was <throat> it was refreshing. I think for a lot of young people because it was like, wow, I don't have a lot of money. I can't get a membership to the mm-hmm. you know humane society. Like, yeah, this is something that if I can just get my friends to come over and watch a video, my mom won't awareness. let me adopt more dogs. So. Because she's the worst. Yeah. Your mom's the worst. Hey, Kitten. Yeah. Hi. Um, I'm sure Kitten li- listens to all of our episodes. <laughs> Every single one. Um, so I wanted to ask you, that Invisible Children thing, that happened, what, about 10 years ago? Maybe a yeah, little bit more? Yeah, around then. Mm-hmm. And then they did the Coney thing. Yeah, so that was just as there was starting to be more use of what we now call social media, but certainly not at the levels we see with Facebook and Twitter and things like that. So what do you mm-hmm. think has, what do you think has changed? Because their whole thing was like, Hey, get people to get together and actually physically watch this movie together. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think that would happen now as much. Would it, wouldn't it just be like, Hey, share this on your Facebook wall. This is a video. You need to see this. Um, I think when you're, when you're starting out, that's what it is now. You know, it's like, it's almost purely social media, mm-hmm. but then I think the communal aspect of it is gone. And it really has like either the hashtag social cause tweets on one end. And then the other end is like, okay, now we have to do something that's like outrageous. Well, I remember when, when, when Boko Haram, um, captured all those girls from that school a few years ago uh, in Africa. Like I was, I was astounded, Nick, that like the first lady of the United States, among other people was doing hashtag activism, hashtag bring back our girls, I think is what it was Mm -hmm. or bring our girls home. It's like, you're, you're the first lady of the United States. Like, Mm -hmm. who are you appealing to? (laughs) Like, 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 Hashtags are supposed to like represent a grassroots swell to get powerful people to become aware of a problem. What does it mm-hmm. mean when our politicians who literally have the power to do something about these kinds of things, or we think they do, when they're resorting to hashtag activism? I, I don't know. I don't even know what it's... I guess it's giving them the benefit of the doubt maybe it's to show solidarity like we understand this issue maybe i don't know yeah i think i think to be somewhat charitable but maybe not as charitable as you just were i think it's hey as a government we kind of decided we're not going to do anything about this because it's too sticky but we're going to show quote solidarity with you unquote by doing hashtag activism by our first lady Mm -hmm. like if for example We have, uh, we rescued the, um, uh, Bo Bergdahl, the guy from, the guy from Afghanistan. He was a prisoner for a long time. He was a soldier. It was controversial. It was the, uh, the subject of serial, the serial podcast season two. Um, and so we rescued this guy and it took years to negotiate and to set the whole thing up, but there was never a hashtag campaign because we were doing the actual things we needed to do to rescue this guy. There, there was never a hashtag bring back bow kind of a thing mm-hmm. because our government was doing things. And so you don't do a hashtag activism campaign when you're doing things. It seems almost, it seems almost, um, mutually exclusive, the relationship between powerful people doing things and a hashtag campaign. It would seem to me that the most useful, uh, the most, uh, productive use of a hashtag campaign is to get powerful people's attention, right? To, to raise awareness. Um, but my question is like, how do you think that the prevalence of social media in our culture has changed raising awareness? If at all, has it made it easier? Has it made it harder? Has it made it less effective? Has it made it more effective? Um, you know, when you, when you think about the, 
like you said, the communal aspect of invisible children and other things, other causes back in the day where people were handing out flyers um, and getting people to rally together. What's the relationship between social media and raising awareness like today and how it's changed what that means? Yeah, I think it's a double-edged sword, right? Um, and I know it sounds mm-hmm. like a really old man, like, like answer, but on the one hand, uh, all of uh, all the guys who used to work for Barack Obama make make fun of him for doing on the one hand, and then on the other answers, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I mean, most most answers have elements of that. Yes, sometimes, sometimes, uh, but it's a double edged sword because social media and the internet in general make information very accessible. Yep. So if you're Kim Kardashian and you have however million Instagram followers and you say something about, you know, whatever controversial political issue or cause that you're trying to raise awareness for, then it's super easy, even for celebrities, because they don't have to throw, like, galas and nights. Like, for example... I wonder what the need would be, or if it, maybe you can weigh in on this too. If Katrina happened today, if there, if you think there would still be like a kind of variety show musical performance night on television, do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, the whole Kanye George Bush doesn't care yeah, about black people. There's that thing because now Kanye could just go on the social media networks that everyone yeah. uses and just upload a video of him saying that. Yeah. And it would be he, viral. he could just do it on Facebook live right now. He could just decide yeah. to, to do that. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, that's interesting. I think there like Haiti for Haiti, there was still a televised thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think one of the hidden secrets is that people who have money in our country tend to be older and mm-hmm. older people tend to use social media less, uh, or not at all. And so I do think that mass media is still important um, for the for the next 20, 30 years, because the people who have powerful positions and extra money and financial security, they're still watching CBS. That's why, like, CBS can keep on making NCIS and just printing money because because people like no one that you or I know sits down and watches like CSI Miami, CSI, NCIS, NCIS Los Angeles. Um, two broke girls, two and a half. Like, but those shows have been printing money. Like, they still, they still. I mean, some of them are are no longer on the air. But CBS yeah. is like the network of old people, and those people. Like, I'm gonna say right now, 95 percent of those people have never heard of Twitter. Yeah, like ever. Well, they have as a joke in CSI. Oh yeah, yeah. There's a yeah. There's a bunch of Twitter jokes, yeah. but they don't know. They could never like use it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I do think like sometimes like. This is why I'm jealous of you sometimes that you don't have a Facebook. Sometimes we get so um, into the silos of social media that we think everybody has this. Like that everybody's everybody's in this fishbowl with us. Whereas a lot of people have very, very sparing use of things like Facebook. Most people do not use Twitter. I think it's 6 or 7% of people in the United States use Twitter. Even though like I think everyone does. But it's mm-hmm. the vast majority of people don't. And so I think these social media networks are powerful, but they're only, and this is, this is a guess I'm going to make in, in real time here. I think one of the drawbacks about Black Lives Matter as a movement is it's been so driven by social media. And we know by studying social movements that they're much more effective if they're intergenerational. Yeah. And, and it's hard to have an intergenerational movement fueled by something that not all generations use. Like, an old black dude who's a part of the civil rights who's like hanging out with his family on his front porch, like just doing stuff, like listening to the radio. He probably doesn't have like he probably has heard of Black Lives Matter, but he's not seeing most of their stuff, most of the hashtags, most of the tweets, most of the Facebook stuff. He'll, he's still watching the evening news. So so to create an intergenerational movement takes so much more effort and so much more Um, It was done for the civil rights movement. It was done through black churches, which were intergenerational institutions. You had kids, you had old people, you had young people, you had parents. 
And so that's one of the things that I think is kind of iffy about these kinds of movements, not just particularly Black Lives Matter, but anything that uses social media or hashtag um, activism is probably not going to be effective simply because it's not going to reach across enough demographic lines in order to be effective. I mean, one of my favorite books, um, I don't agree with everything in it, but it's uh, How to Change the World by Dr. Hunter. Yeah. And he's a sociologist, I think, from, do you remember, is it Harvard? It's some, something, you know, prestigious, whatever. Yeah. Uh, I think it, I think it may, the title might be To Change the World. Yeah. I'm not sure if the how is there, but you can look it up, guys. Amazon. Guys it. Look it up. Who cares? No one um, cares. No one cares. I'm bringing this up as a joke. I'm not, but mm-hmm. maybe. Maybe um, you can tell. Basically, it goes into... Um, how movements happen. Yeah. And I think a lot of us want to believe in this, like, grassroots um, thing. I don't know, really, this phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Of if you can just get all these people, and we look at, uh, like, the march, um, the civil rights marches in Washington, Washington D.C. as, like, an example of, like, yeah. look, people rose up. People said no, no, and like we. It was spontaneous. People just did it by themselves. People like handed out flyers, and like it was mostly because like people were like in the mood and blah, blah, blah. But what he goes into is how let's like looking at purely grassroots movement and their success rate in this country. So the most successful grassroots movement that our nation has ever had. Can you guess what it is? I can't. What is it? Temperance. Mm. Okay, so well, the- first of all, it's because <laughs> it's because women were doing it, and they're less lazy and distracted than men. So that's the first yeah. explanation. Well, yeah, well, there's that, but the second explanation, uh, well, I mean, is just simply that it's this huge grassroots movement. People are like, yeah, we've had enough of our husbands drinking, we've had enough of our sons drinking, we've had enough of our pastors drinking, and we're just sick of everyone drinking all the time. Mm-hmm. And so we're gonna rise up, and we're gonna have hundreds and thousands of women demand that alcohol be illegal, i.e. the prohibition. Yep. And the thing that he examines is kind of like, well, once those people got older and mm-hmm. the majority shifted and it wasn't a majority clause anymore, mm-hmm. that law and that policy just disappeared. So yep. we don't have prohibition anymore. Yeah, and he goes into, and I'm, this isn't really tangential because I think it's, as it supports a lot what you're saying, how the best movements focus on yes, some type of grassroots thing, but also kind of honing in on these cultural gatekeepers, yep. so to speak. So you have lawyers who are willing to represent these people in civil rights cases. Yes, you had older black clergy who were educated at seminaries who could organize movements. Yep. You had younger uh, African-Americans who had a lot of energy in the grassroots side of mm-hmm. You also had musicians. Yeah, you, you, had, you had black and yeah. white celebrities. Who, uh, Dr. Mm-hmm. King, um, I know a guy who wrote a whole book about this. His name is Goody, Goody Goodlow. And okay. Goody's his nickname, but his, his oh, okay. last name is Goodlow. And he, okay. he, uh, I, he's a great guy. He's a doc, he's a Martin Luther King scholar and he wrote a book called Kingmaker and it was all about Dr how Dr King approached both black and white celebrities who cared about the movement and used their political and social clout like people like Frank Sinatra people like um Harry Belafonte uh whether people like uh, Jim Rice like big sports people big entertainment people um that he would harness actors, he would harness their clout and their their spheres of influence and use them to further the movement. And that's very strategic and it's very hard work. And it's also, you have to do some schmoozing. So if yeah. it, if anybody thinks that King was not a politician because he didn't hold office, you're incorrect. Mm-hmm. He, he had to be, he had to be a, a, a coalition builder and he had to be someone who reached out to people with fame and power and money and to have a successful movement, you have to do that kind of stuff. If, if you think that it's enough to just get a bunch of young people on the street chanting things, you're going to be sorely disappointed. That's not how things work. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's also the breadth and diversity of yep. people that yep. make movements good. So, like, not only do we need, in terms of, like, you know, the, let's think of the most prominent two-day 
raise awareness thing, which would be the Black Lives Matter hashtag yeah. movement, whatever. Yeah. And this isn't a conversation about race, but in that example, Beyonce and Kendrick Lamar and whoever and whatever, all of these art musicians mostly coming out and saying, hey, we really support this. That's, it's kind of like what you're saying, but the problem is too, that there's not a, a diversity. Yeah, you need support. country artists to be doing it. Yeah. You need you need um, electro pop stars to be doing it. You need, but not even just in music, but just like you need a political figure who's like, hey, yes, like we this is when we say Black Lives Matter, I'm a politician, and for me that means mm-hmm. cracking and, down on police on having police. Well, and you need and like, you need well, white well. you need white politicians and Latino politicians and Asian politicians. You need mm-hmm. people like one of the the brilliance of the civil rights movement was that it it cut across all demographics, whether it was age, whether it was race, income, geography. Like it wasn't just like Black Lives Matter is a mostly urban mostly young people, mostly social media, vast majority black movement. So it's so mm-hmm. contained, even though there's a, a huge amount of awareness that's been raised about Black Lives Matter, people don't own it. The movement is not owned. I saw a poll a couple months ago that the vast, the, the like 60 plus percent of black people don't even identify with Black Lives Matter. They're like, no, I'm more of kind of like an all lives matter person. I don't really do the Black Lives Matter thing. And it's like, I'm not here to say that's good or bad. I'm just here to say if you want to have an effective movement, raising awareness is not enough. You have to be strategic. You have to get cultural uh, kingmakers. You have to get politicians. And it has to cut across a variety of demographic boundaries. It just has to. Or it's not going to work. Like we saw it with – like let's take away from race. Occupy Wall Street. Yeah. Occupy Wall Street was a joke. It was a joke. So I have professors who still think it was this great movement. What did they do? There's literally mm-hmm. no accomplishments from Occupy Wall Street, except for I literally my friends will be. Yeah, but it raised a lot of awareness about just about Wall Street, how it's bad. Because like Marx didn't write a book 160 years ago. about No, that, no one knows uh, about the pitfalls of capitalism until um, until a bunch of northeastern liberal arts educated iPhone owning uh, hipsters show up and camp out in southern Manhattan for three months. Hey. Sorry. That went too far. Hey, I'm going to tweet about capitalism on this phone. Okay. Just give me a second. But back to, to awareness and the limitations of awareness, I think these things are related because if you think that awareness is enough, or if you think awareness is this crucial component, and you think of awareness in terms of advertising or getting the word out or using social media, then naturally it will silo into your networks, your already pre-existing networks. And it's, it's going to be a limited message that doesn't, that has less power to persuade people who don't already agree with you. And so I, I think what I'm getting at with the relationship between awareness and social media is that it might actually make one group of people hyper aware and make the majority of people kind of aware, but then they kind of feel like they don't own the thing at all because they're just being kind of shouted at by all these different avenues of social media. Mm -hmm. Well, and it goes into kind of the motivations for awareness, which I know we wanted to talk about. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, so I think if your true goal, so if you're a believer maybe that the only reason bad things happen is because people don't actually know about them, you know, which there is a school of thought that thinks who, who that. Who said that? Who said that, Nick? Um, Socrates-ish, yeah. Yeah. because it's kind of like everyone's talking at once, but Aristotle really locked down the whole... Sin is ignorance. Yeah, sin is ignorance type thing. So, like, if you really understood the consequences of your actions, you would not do it. So the mm-hmm. only way you can commit evil is by thinking, like, oh, well, it's not that bad. You know, mm-hmm. so, you, you don't see it. You don't see it as evil. Yeah. Which, you know, there's I, I think there's some partial truth in that. I think there is that way. Um, so if you're one of those people and you really think that by raising awareness, i.e. dismantling ignorance, you can cause less evil to happen in the world, then you would most definitely have a multi front assault on ignorance. You wouldn't just be on Twitter 
You wouldn't just be laying on the floor in an H&M in Brooklyn. Like, you would be trying to win over 58-year-old empty nesters in the heartland of America. Like, you would be trying to really, really, really break down the people who are actually ignorant, not people who already have Black Lives Matter t-shirts on or Occupy Wall Street posters of George Washington in a wig. Imagine you could convince Carrie Underwood to, to become a Black Lives Matter activist. Oh, it'd be insane. Do you know how powerful that would be? Yeah, it's like when the Dixie Chicks were anti-Bush. Yeah. Like, that caused such a huge thing because it was like, wait, you're country musicians, so you're Republican, period. And it was like, no, we are edgy and we have ugly haircuts and listen to what we have to say. And everyone was like, whoa, they do have ugly haircuts. And and also terrible bird tattoos. Yeah. Which now every girl I know has. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, maybe they're more influential than I thought. Put a but, bird on it. Yeah, but it's like, exactly. So, but what I, what I was going to say for that is, however, I think some people don't actually believe that. And they're not actually trying to raise awareness. They're trying to relieve feelings of helplessness and guilt. Mm-hmm. And social media is a great way to do that. So by yelling at your 90 followers on Twitter mm-hmm. about the atrocities of insert cause mm-hmm. here, and then you get to go, wow, I did something. Yeah, and, and in addition to, to that, it's not just that you're doing catharsis for yourself. There's also a theory that I believe is true. It's a it's the theory of virtue signaling. You're mm-hmm. also showing people online through your speech how virtuous you are because you're against this thing that they're against too. So for a white person to feel better about black people getting killed by cops, you can say, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. I can't believe this is happening. This is crazy. Then you feel better. And you're signaling to your other socially enlightened and uh, non-white friends how how much you're on the right side of things. So it's a mm-hmm. two, bir- two birds with one stone kind of a situation. You feel better and you feel like socially you're you're being perceived as the person that you want to be perceived as. Yeah. Virtue signaling. All right. Well, let's let's get back to this idea that awareness, bringing awareness is sort of falling, is walking down the path of sin as ignorance. And you said Aristotle articulated it more, sort of the most robustly, but Socrates also talked about it. Mm-hmm. What are the weaknesses with the model of sin as ignorance? Like, what are what are the possible problems that we'd run into if we define sin as ignorance? Yeah, well, it depends on if you believe in radical evil. So, um, when ethicists and philosophers talk about radical evil, are sometimes they've heard it as like true evil or more progressive people will only they'll like limit their use of the word evil to this case basically yeah is something where it seems like some an individual or a group of people are doing something that is just so intrinsically wrong so abhorrent and awful and it almost seems like it's not even benefiting them in some way it's just radical um suffering it can it can work in almost any ethical uh situation and in this theory that people are basically good they're just misguided Mm -hmm. i think is one way of putting it 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 just can't account for the fact that sometimes people do things for reasons maybe they don't even understand mm-hmm. and that's an extreme example but it but a more humble example is it doesn't really account for the will so yeah. in aristotle's view which in most ancient views that holds true it, it, information whether that comes through the fences or through interaction with pure forms or whatever but with god blah blah we're kind of a translucent medium we're yeah. completely clear. We just receive information and whether, and maybe we have to think about it a little bit under the tutelage of like a wise philosopher or a yeah. mathematician or something. But after a while, these intrinsic truths just become kind of self-evident and there we go. 
Yeah. As philosophy has developed, and especially with the work of existentialists mm-hmm. and Soren Kierke, um, people started being like, well, it seems like sometimes, and Marx actually talks about this a lot too, it seems like sometimes people believe things or don't believe things because they don't want to. Yeah. Like they, they have a desire yeah. to not believe something or to yeah. believe something. And so in a model where knowledge and the lack thereof are what constitutes evil, um, how does it deal with the idea that some people can actively refuse information? Yep. Um, or actively believe lies. Yeah, you can so say willful, kind of, yeah. willful ignorance. Yeah, I mean, it's a phrase we all use. <clears throat> and so. Kierkegaard goes into all these different ways that we can do that. We can delay, delay, delay. We can try to avoid things. We can distract ourselves. Like, he actually goes really deep into this because he disagrees mm-hmm. with Socrates. He does, not, he does not believe that sin is ignorance. He believes that <laughs> sin is a corruption of the will and that we choose ignorance and we choose to not do... <clears throat> the right thing. And um, I don't want to get too in the weeds on this, but you can see this in things like confirmation bias and in just how people respond on social media to facts presented by people with whom they disagree. Um, if everyone was a rational animal and we were all using the same sets of data, there wouldn't be a bunch of arguments all the time. Like we would mm-hmm. just, everyone would go, Oh, okay, well that data is there and that data is there. And everyone ha- would have kind of a nuanced and, and data-driven kind of response to things, but that's not what we see. We see people having preconceived notions, not wanting to let go of those notions. Uh, uh, confirmation bias is when you look for facts to back up something that you already believe, and you ignore facts that assault your sensibilities. Uh, I, I don't think that the sin is ignorance thing is simply an ignorance of the will or a leaving the will out of it. I think it's also ignoring emotion. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that mm-hmm. our emotions are very powerful and that they we have emotional reactions to things in our life. And some of that emotional reaction is good and some of that is bad. And it's hard to tell sometimes what the difference what's the difference between outrage and rage and uh, justified outrage and uh, righteous indignation. You know, it's you have to kind of dig into those things. But. If people are more than just an intellect, which we know that they are, we know that we have intellect, we have will, we have emotion, um, context and physical things that go on. It's a more nuanced discussion when we talk about sin or evil or wrong. So simply providing information oftentimes is not going to be enough. That's the point. The point is awareness is not enough. Awareness is not actually going to always lead to a solution to problems. That's why like you said, the successful movements take a tremendous amount of will. Like people mm-hmm. have, people have to invest in systems. I mean, the, the boycotts that Dr. King led, those were set up for years. People, t- people did a lot of hard work to get these things done. And that's one of the things I think is missing from some of the movements we've seen with Occupy Wall Street and Black Lives Matter. The virtue of patience and the virtue of um, of will over time, of willing one thing over time and being committed to that thing, which is what, what Kierkegaard said was led to purity of heart, was willing one thing over time and being committed to that thing and, and not swerving off or getting distracted or becoming egoistic about it. Um, that's one of the things that led to the civil rights movement being successful. And I don't know if we in our social media age, in our awareness age, if we have the virtues necessary to persevere over time, quietly willing one thing, not reacting to the latest media cycle, um, I just doubt that we have that kind of uh, fortitude at this point in in a lot of the people who are interested in this kind of awareness raising activism. Yeah, and the, the fragmented nature of these movements. Yeah play it kind of plays off each other so not only and we've talked about this before but not only is it occupy wall street but there's also ideas of racial inequality thrown Mm -hmm. in and there's ideas of gender inequality and there's ideas of immigration policy and so it just comes off as this like giant 
um, mixture of complaint, which, yeah. and, and that's not me saying that none of those issues are relevant. No, they're super relevant issues, they're, uh, for sure. They are the issues right now in a lot of ways. Not that they haven't been in the past, but they are very important to talk about, and I really hope we can move forward on those issues. However, when it's just a wall of, of just sound and poorly designed flags and die-ins and sit-ins and Beyonce sound bites that are 10 seconds, it doesn't, it's like what you said, the patience and the tenacity of these old movements just aren't there. They aren't there, you know, and that's why Occupy Wall Street just this like, didn't it just like evaporate? It's not like our government shut it down. No, it, it evaporated, just, and we got uh, Dodd-Frank financial legislation out of it that re- was so full of loopholes it really didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. If you if you say that's your, your big victory, then it was a very sad <laughs> movement. Because um, so, financial regulation really hasn't changed since then. I mean, in any discernible way. Banks are still doing their thing. So, you know, why, if, if, if Occupy Wall Street had worked, why would Bernie Sanders have been so popular? Because he was raging mm-hmm. against the millionaires and billionaires of Wall Street. So either it worked or it was, maybe you could say, well, it worked because it led to the rise of Bernie Sanders. But even then, Bernie's doing Bernie things. You know, he, he had a great run, but, you know, Hillary Clinton is the nominee of the Democratic Party and she gets paid thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to give speeches to Wall Street. So, yeah, it is what it is. Oops. Sorry, everyone. Time to go home. Well, I mean, Bernie is another great example of hyper awareness in small circles and yep. complete ignorance in yep. anywhere else in the nation. Yeah, if you're a liberal white college student, like Bernie was everything to you. Mm-hmm. And if you're like a middle aged African American woman, you're like, I don't know who that is. I'm voting for Hillary Clinton. <laughs> yeah. Like, who is this old man yelling at me? Why is he yelling? Oh, man. Yeah, so awareness is an interesting thing. You know, sin as ignorance is an interesting idea. Uh, I think social media definitely plays into it. I wanted to ask you, though, about about levels of obligation, levels of awareness. So there's an ethicist at Princeton, I believe his name is Peter Singer, and he's kind of put forward that we now in a global age, in, a, in an age of, of awareness where we see things on television, we see things on social media, that we have just as much obligation to people we see on these digital forms of media as we do to our literal neighbor, because mm-hmm. we're a global community, we're, we're, you know, we're a global society. But what's your take on that? Are we as, because of, when, when we're made aware of something through something like digital media, does that then uh, make us ethically obligated to act upon that? to the same extent as something that's happening next door to a greater extent, a less extent, not at all. Like what, what, what's your take on the level of obligation that comes with levels of awareness of things um, that might not be physically proximate or within our own direct sphere of influence? Who? that's a tough one. I mean, this kind of ties into the Beyonce shirt thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It definitely does. Um, I would say the cosmopolitan side of me wants to, because it's so clean, you know, mm-hmm. to just be like every human life is worth something equally. Mm-hmm. So if someone is dying from, you know, post tsunami water filtration issues in Southeast Asia, that should be just as important to you as your mother dying of cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of like removes all the subjectivity in some ways and makes it really clean. However, I think it really does an awful, this is almost like tautological, but it does an awful job dealing with lived experience, mm-hmm. which naturally, naturally, you care about things that you're around and that you're personally connected to. Mm-hmm. And I think that in the name of trying to make ethics more objective, doing something that is almost 
a 180 from most people's natural ethical thinking is I don't think that's a good compromise. That sounds like I'm not really addressing the issue. Like I'm more dealing with it from a, a methodological almost point yeah. of view. Um, but I would say that's probably one of my biggest critiques of it is that it completely flies in the face of how most people think about ethics. Yeah. And, so, yeah. so it's, it's, it's not, I mean, it, that doesn't mean it's not right. It just means it's unnatural. And therefore mm -hmm. you might have to work really, really, really hard to get people to care as much about a boy living in Bangkok as they do the, the, the woman across the street that they see her husband hit her in her front yard. Yeah. And, you know, like, mm -hmm. like there's a visceral kind of reaction when we see evil physically, when we see something wrong happening, like, but then you have on the other side, this, this thing where now we're seeing like cops shoot black people in Baton Rouge. I'm, I've driven through Baton Rouge, but I've never been in Baton Rouge. Like I've never stayed in Baton Rouge. I have nothing mm -hmm. to do with Baton Rouge. Do I own a cop shooting a black guy in Baton Rouge to the same level as I own the fact that when I call the cops in my neighborhood, it takes them like forever to show up because it's a, a majority non-white neighborhood. Like, do I get, mm -hmm. do I get as motivated to try to change things in Baton Rouge as I do in my own community? And like the Catholic principle of subsidiarity would say, no, like things need to be solved on a local level first. Then you escalate it when it's beyond the local level the ability of the local level to do it. So Baton Rouge needs to take care of Baton Rouge. Los Angeles needs to take care of Los Angeles to the extent that we can. Um, I'm not sure where I land on this because I, like, for example, like Jessica and I have a few like kids that we support in other countries and we give money to charity water, which is my favorite charitable organization. Cause I think they're doing the most good with the, the least amount of dollars, like bringing clean water and preventing disease and all these, um, these communities in the developing world. So, so we do invest in that kind of thing. But then again, we're also heavily involved in our local church and we try to like actually make our, our neighbors, our friends and like make sure we're there for them. So like in our, in our ethical sort of obligations, we're all over the map. So I don't know if I can say that I have a consistent position on, should I be trying to help people in other continents? Should I be helping people in other States in the United States? Should I be helping my neighbors and to what extent and what resources? For me, it's more of a question, and this is a little off topic, but it's a question of harnessing the power that you have. And one of the most powerful things that we have is our dollars. The United States has a very powerful currency. So I can make a much bigger difference in the life of a poor kid in Africa through one of these organizations than I can in the life of a poor kid in Los Angeles. But that doesn't mean I'm right for prioritizing giving money to an organization in Africa over tutoring a poor kid in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. So it's, it, it's, it's difficult. And it requires, um, again, it doesn't really deal, deal with humanness. And by that, I mean something different than I said earlier. So on principle, maybe I agree with him. However, we are finite beings. So because of that, if I had unlimited time, if I was an eternal thing, and I could slowly tally up my time and be like, okay, I want to deal with female mutilation mm -hmm. in Eastern Africa. Mm -hmm. Okay, do that for 150 years, and maybe societal change will happen. Mm -hmm. And then I go, okay, what's next? I need to deal with the post-apartheid racial inequality in South Africa now. So here I go doing that. And then like what? I just like hop around the globe forever trying to help fix problems. But as a finite person, I don't, I have to choose yep. something. Yep. And that means saying no to a bunch of other things as well. So I think maybe in a floating empty world where you not of being trapped in time or inside of time, it makes a lot more sense, but because we have to make decisions, we have to decide how we will use our limited amount of time yeah. and our limited amount of resources, not even bringing that up, and energy, and our own natural talents. So maybe you would do really well tutoring 
um, a impoverished kid in Los Angeles, but I know that my dad probably wouldn't be doing that. Wouldn't really be using him in the best way possible. Yeah, your dad should be building. Really ha- he should be building houses for poor people. Yeah. So it's like not only do you have to take in your own personal time, energy, and resources, but also your own natural talent. Yeah. So I think it just can't deal with the fact that you will have to choose. You know, you can't do everything. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's the illusion of social media is I saw an article the other day from Relevant Magazine. I didn't even get to read it. I just saw the the title. It was just Christians, you don't have to weigh in on everything. (laughs) (laughs) Which I thought was really great. It's like you don't have to say something about everything that happens. Because here's the thing. The more things you talk about, on Facebook, online, the more, by definition, you're speaking from ignorance. Think about it. The more things you address, that means the more divided your attention is. Besides your job and your family and your actual life, right? You have a certain amount of attention to learn about events. And most people aren't like me. Their job is not to study ethics. So they, they're, they're not experts. They don't have all the information at their fingertips. They haven't read all the philosophy that you've read. And so people are just kind of throwing opinions out there, throwing hot takes out there, throwing, you know, these, like, this is what's wrong and this is how we need to fix it. And most of it, by the way, is wrong. Most of it's just not based on facts. But people are are spinning their wheels and trying to say, I'm going to say something about the, the, the shooting at the Pulse nightclub. And then I'm going to say something about the, about the, the, the shooting of black people by, by police officers. And I'm going to talk about, um, Caitlyn Jenner and, and trans rights and, and bathrooms and, and, and everybody saying everything about everything. But like Nate Silver would say, most of this is noise. It's not actually a signal. Mm-hmm. It's not actually something that means something. And so you get the proliferation of opinions and the proliferation of retweets and the proliferation of awareness. But oftentimes it can be false awareness. Like I'll give you one concrete example. So one of the one of the incidents with black police officers and or police officers and black people that um, was one of the early kind of awareness bringing situations was that this gentleman who had an altercation with the police um, put his hands up and said, don't shoot. Mm -hmm. Okay, now that's that's actually happened in a lot of situations like it just happened last week in like Miami. This occupational therapist had an autistic patient that he was trying to deal with and a, and a cop, he put his hands up, explained the situation to a cop and said, Hey, please don't shoot me. And the cop shot him anyway. So that's ridiculous and should never happen and shame on the police officer. And that's awful. Mm -hmm. But this other situation, there was this kind of like someone had said, Oh yeah, I was there. He put his hands up and he said, don't shoot. So this became a huge thing where huge marching protesters said, hands up, don't shoot, hands up, don't shoot. Hands up, don't mm-hmm. shoot. And it became this hashtag thing. It became a social media thing. Well, I totally get that passion and I totally get that, 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 that communication and the amplification of that message. Turns out that guy never said that, never did that. Turns out this guy attacked a cop, right? Mm-hmm. So, so in this particular instance, the thing that sparked the hands up, don't shoot phrase and, you know, chant and, and meme didn't actually happen. And this is one of the dangers of social media and quick multiplication is, and this isn't just with like racial things or cop things. This is with like basic what happened in this world event things, like whether it's a plane crashing in the Ukraine or whatever, there's all these situations and the first reports are almost always incomplete or inaccurate, right? Any Mm -hmm. kind of dramatic news coverage. And then they're instantly multiplied a million times over, literally just millions of times over. And normally what happens is these situations, and this is one of the the downsides of awareness, is that the first narrative becomes the entrenched narrative and facts end up not mattering. And I'll give you a really stupid example that you're going to roll your eyes at me about, but I I am a fan of the football team, the New England Patriots. Our quarterback, Tom Brady, is going to sit out the first four games of the upcoming NFL season. Do you know why? Because his balls. Yes, because of his balls. Um, so basically, the narrative that came out, this has been going on for 18 months. It's taken up the time of circuit courts and arbiters. It's the most ridiculous sports um, 
thing that's ever happened that that people would be this concerned about deflated balls in an AFC championship game. There were 7% deflated um, in the AFC championship game. So here's what happened. The first narrative that comes out is that the Patriots footballs are significantly under deflated, right? So this starts the whole hunt, the whole investigation. And so there's all these things I'm not going to get into, but basically Tom Brady was made the, the guy who was the fall guy, even though there's no evidence he even knew about the footballs, um, and so he's being prosecuted by the NFL, and he gets a suspension, then he gets it overturned, and it gets repealed, and the circuit court says, nah, man, you got to serve the suspension. Roger Goodell can do whatever he wants. He's the commissioner of the NFL. Well, in the meantime, over the last 18 months, scientists from Stanford, Harvard, MIT, University of Chicago, like a huge community of scientists who know about something called the ideal gas law, have said, Hey guys, uh, we all ran this math and basically those footballs were just as deflated as you'd expect them to be given the temperature changes on that very cold night in New England. When you bring the balls out of a warm environment into a cold environment and then you take them from a cold environment, put them back in a warm environment, your, your, your measurement is going to be affected. And the 7% deflation that you saw was completely explainable by the ideal gas law. Now this isn't a bunch of me out there. This isn't a, bu- a bunch of New England Patriots fans saying this. These are scientists. These are people who, these are physicists. These are people who understand the mm-hmm. ideal gas law, but the facts no longer matter because the first narrative that went out was the Patriots deflated footballs. They're cheaters. Tom Brady's a cheater, even though he's never been in trouble for anything ever. Now he's got this black mark on his record. People think he's a cheater. He, ha- he has to serve a four game suspension which might cost his team a trip to the playoffs next year. It costs him millions of dollars. Meanwhile, all the facts have come out about what actually happened with the footballs, basically. And there's the factually speaking, there was no deflation. There was, there was no manual deflation of footballs. That's what scientists are telling us, but it doesn't matter anymore because that's not the narrative. And that's <laughs> one of the problems with the, our, our, our era of instant awareness of instant social media awareness that one, if you're the first person to get your story out, it might not matter what the facts are. And that's yeah. my, that's my football's rant. Well, it's also the whole, you know, post Boston marathon. Yeah. Shenanigans on Reddit. Where, the, the kid that got posted on Reddit as the, yeah, the where people are like, this is it. This is the guy. And it's like, okay. Oh my gosh. Like you are not a federal investigator. You're not any kind of investigator, really. You have the internet. So, like, you're on the internet. You are not even from Boston. You don't even live near there. You have no idea what's going on. And yet you, because everyone else is so stupid, you're the one who found him. Nick, that is so key. What you just said is so key. It's the assumption that because you have the internet and everyone else is an idiot, Mm -hmm. that you can bring awareness of the truth to everyone else. Yeah. It's so ridiculous. The, a similar thing happened a couple weeks ago with the, with the Dallas thing, because 45 states in our union have open carry. You can carry a gun openly in, in society. There are people mm-hmm. at the Black Lives Matter protest in Dallas that had guns, because mm-hmm. they're allowed to have guns. Um, there was a black guy who had a gun, who he had, like, like a camo, something camo, and he had a gun. When the shooting started, when 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 the sniper guy started shooting cops, this guy mm-hmm. immediately walked up to the cops and surrendered his weapon. Yeah. He said, hey, I want to give you this weapon. I want to make sure that nobody thinks it's me. Well, what happened? People took pictures of him, and he became a suspect. Because of social media, he became a suspect. Yeah. Even though he did exactly the right thing that you're supposed to do for a few hours on the internet, he had become an official suspect, even though he had been absolutely 100% right in what he did uh, because of awareness. Because people – here's the thing. If awareness is seen as a good in itself, when something is a false awareness, it's going to be harder to get rid of. It's going to be harder to change that narrative or that reality. Yeah. Well, that's why these weird arguments continue to just – circulate in these little like micro groups you know like arguments that would very 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 easily just disappear if actual conversation would happen yeah um i mean one of my favorite ones is 
Oh my gosh, there's there's a lot, but one of my favorite ones, and you know, we've been making fun of the left, but from our own background is um, back when Ed, the evolution scare was happening, um, or not that stopped, but when when we were both at the high school you taught at, yeah, um, I just remember people, grown men and women, saying, "Well, you know, if we evolved from monkeys." Why are there still monkeys? It's a good you question, know? Nick. And it's a great question. And I remember being in sixth grade and being like, that's a really good question. Because it makes so much sense when you're in that hyper-awareness community. Yeah. You know, like, being in an evangelical Christian community, it's like, well, duh. Like, it just makes so much sense. And it's just repeated so much that... I don't even think you can really question it until you've run into something outside of it. Yeah. And I imagine that the internet is just that on like steroids because you have a bunch of people who don't even know what they look like. That's the really scary thing is these like online communities. Most of them don't even know what each other look like. Yeah. So there's already that. Yeah. But like just being in these giant echo chambers and constantly being told what you already know over and over and over again is going to cause this weird thing. Well, the other that day, the other day, Nick, I ran into a, a, a Richard Dawkins fan. Oh, and he, you know, had been liberated from the bonds of traditional Christianity by Dawkins and others. And mm -hmm. I was trying to have a conversation with him about the is ought distinction about mm -hmm. how science can tell us what is, but science can't really tell us what ought to be. Mm hmm. And his answer to me was, yeah, well, astrophysicists are working on that. And I just... Okay. I just don't know what to do. And, and I said to him, I said, hey, you and I probably can't have a conversation. I just, I just said that. We, we probably can't talk about this because our views of epistemology are so radically different about how we can know what is and how we can even talk about talking that at a certain point you just have to say we can't have a conversation. And that's how I feel online sometimes. I feel like I'm saying, hey, guys, there's this is-ought is distinction thing, and I feel like I have a, a hundred people saying back to me, yeah, well, astrophysicists are working on that. Mm -hmm. I, I'm just like, I can't categorically deal with it sometimes. I don't even know why astrophysicists... I, I don't even know what that's a reference. That's what I'm saying. It doesn't... Yeah. It literally makes no sense. So if I'm talking to someone online, and I'm like, hey, like, um, Black Lives Matter people... I would love to help you like communicate your message a little better to my conservative white friends, um, like using like the facts of what's going on and kind of using context. And then when someone says to me, well, facts are a white privilege, mm -hmm. which they are. I don't, here's what it is. I literally can't, I don't have the resources to continue a conversation at that point. Yeah. Like, I can't have a conversation. I just can't have a conversation. I, I literally don't have the resources to have a conversation because I am a limited human. Mm -hmm. I don't have the time and energy resources to do the hard work of bringing an awareness of why we're not having the same conversation. Because it's so much hard work to even explain why we're not talking about the same thing. Um, that I think this is a big problem with the internet, online, social media awareness, that we're actually not bringing awareness most of the time to people who don't agree with us already. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, that's why it's like, I had friends who were like, we need to go protest Trump's rally. You know, like, we need to go protest it. And it was like, why? Why do we need to do that? It's like, well... We want to, I mean, I guess I'm kind of reading into it. I hope this is why they were doing it. It's like, we want to change people's minds. We want to go there and maybe someone will be like, wow, look at all these young people yelling in front of this whatever. And they'll be like, man, I don't want to vote for Trump anymore. And then they'll talk to us, I guess. I don't know. But for me, it's like Trump isn't evangelizing at a Republican convention. You know, maybe he's converting. The only people he's really converting are the people who are like 
didn't really want Trump to be. He's trying to con- he's trying to convert me, but it's not going to happen. Yeah. Well, he yeah. Okay. Um, but it's he's definitely not using the platform of the Republican convention to reach out to white lesbian Democrats who have neck tattoos yep. in Brooklyn. Like yep. they're not going to be like, let me turn on the Republican convention and just you know give it a shot. Yep. And I think that's where people get really confused. Like, who do you think you're convincing? Like, yeah. like I love my, my brothers and sisters uh, that go to my seminary, Fuller Theological Seminary, and they had a big die-in where they all pretended mm-hmm. to be dead to bring awareness to black lives and cops. That's fine. One, I'm never going to be a part of that because I don't think it's effective. Secondly... You are not convincing most people. Like most, like by doing that kind of symbolic action, you are going to get a lot of love from people who already agree with you. And most other people are going to say, I literally don't know what this means. Like, like I don't like, like you're not there. That is not persuasive. And and I'm not going to try to tell my, my people that I love not to do that stuff because it's, Hey, do what you need to do, but it's not persuasive. You're not persuading anyone. I've been posting a video online. I've posted it like two or three times in the last week just to try to get people to watch it. And it's this guy named Jeffrey Canada, who I think is one of the the best. Like, he's such an awesome dude. He started the Harlem Children's Zone schools um, that have really changed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids' lives in Harlem. He's a black man. He started charter schools. He understands the problems of systemic uh, racial injustice uh, in America better than probably anybody else. He's, he's convinced a lot of people, of a lot of things. He's kind of the star hero character of the, uh, documentary, um, waiting for Superman, which is about education reform. This guy has changed more people's lives than in America than most people you'll ever meet or think about or, or even read about. And I can only get a couple of people to comment or like, on when I post these videos because you have to actually listen to his argument. It's only, it's only like 10 minutes long. It's like a really short Ted talk, mm-hmm. but you have to actually get someone to listen to his arguments. And he is so persuasive. He is so persuasive because he uses such great evidence and his arguments are so powerful, but I can get 10 times more people to react to literally, literally this is what I posted the other day. I said, Hey guys, just want to let you know, I'm still not voting for Donald Trump explosion. Just people reacting, liking, clicking everything. Mm-hmm. I can get so many people to get interested in that, but it's so hard to get people to, to, get, to be interested in this amazing, experienced, intelligent crusader for changing the lives of poor young black kids. And I have hundreds of friends doing a die-in at Fuller Theological Seminary. And then I have this guy who's articulating how to actually change the lives of people. And one of those things gets a bunch of attention and the other one gets barely any attention. And it just makes me sad. It makes me sad about how hard it is to actually bring awareness to persuasive arguments uh, where it seems pretty easy to bring awareness to really ineffectual arguments. Yeah. I mean, that is the job of great populizers, you know, popularizers. It's like, that is the benefit of someone being able to, through sheer force of like, either talent or charisma or social standing or whatever. Yeah. Like imagine Seth MacFarlane was right. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's like, I think everything he does is stupid, but (laughs) he at least, I think on a good note, probably someone looked up a little bit of church history, you know, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. maybe they thought about something for the first time, whatever. I mean, Nate Silver is a good example, like yeah. what you brought up. Yeah. Um, there's a bunch of guys who are doing, and girls who are doing just like really great things to make certain aspects seem cool, even though they might not be as initially gratifying as, look at this picture of a kid dying. Mm-hmm. What do you think? You know, it's, yeah, like it's 538 is a very important undertaking that Nate Silver has done. He's trying to bring, mm-hmm. I still think he has a bias. I mean, he basically worked for Barack Obama, um, so he does have a political bias for sure. But he's bringing a lot more awareness and evidence-based speak to analysis of sports and news and politics and things of that nature. And I think that's a really worthy goal, just to bring more data into play, um, you know, especially if it's on stuff that you don't already have a firm position and you're just selecting the data that you want to select. Like, 
I really, really appreciate the work of guys like Nate Silver, but it's so much harder to do that than it is to click like or to hashtag something or to put repost or re-like or reshare a video of a, of a cop shooting a black guy. Yeah. And that's, the, yeah, I mean, that's just the reality of human nature, I would say. Well, Nick, as an ethicist, that is why every day I'm hustling. You good with that? I'm good with that. Cool. Well, that's all the time that we have for today. We'll come back to you next week with an episode. For now, this has been Ryan. And Nick. And you'll hear from us next week. Bye. Bye.